Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, the end of that uh, chapter, verses 12 uh, down through 21, where we'll see uh, God's grace abounding or triumphing. And uh, <clears throat> this section of Scripture is building off of what we have received before, and that's the certainty of our justification in Christ Jesus. We've been declared righteous. We've been forgiven all of our sins, not because of our own merits and our own works, but for the sake of Christ on the basis of His work alone. And we've seen how uh, rock solid that is, how the certainty of that cannot be shaken, not even through sufferings. In fact, it's through sufferings that we take joy because we are taken further into confirmation of our faith as we build character and endurance and uh, hope and a hope that doesn't ever put us to shame. And so I want to pick up in verse 12 here as the apostle continues his letter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> brought, and pick up where, It's a justification for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the king's word to his kings and queens for his father's glory. Amen. So as we look at the text, it is grace's superabundance or the abounding grace of God that's described here. And it is a text in which, um, uh, like many of the texts in Romans, it's complicated by many who have had too much time to count the amount of angels on the edge of a needle or a hair. It seems if you study this text, 
you find that they are, there are so many opinions and so many confusing things about the text that we want to be absolutely clear about what the message is here. And the message is simply that there is more grace, dear beloved Christian believers. There is more grace in Christ than you could ever need. The abundance or superabundance of grace far exceeds the presence of sin in your life at any point. Your mistakes, your failures, your shortcomings of the glory of God can never ever outweigh the abundance of God's grace when you are in Christ Jesus. It should be absolutely clear by this point that nothing can shake you out of justification once you are justified in Christ Jesus. You have been united to Him in His death, buried with Him, and raised in the newness of life. Chapter 6 will demonstrate that, showing that it is the intent of this text to lead you not towards more sinning, but to more righteous living. And so, in order to get there though, you have to see not a a, a gospel that says you must pull it up by your own bootstraps and do your works in order to maintain this. But the only way you're ever going to live a life pleasing God is if you understand God has given you the gift of salvation and it is out of the overflow of gratitude in your life that you now intend to live for Him with joy. God's not pleased when we simply think we are caring about our works of our own doing. And we oftentimes want to choose our own representative. But I want to show you in this text, first of all, just by the way of introduction in the first few verses, before we look at how he has overcome uh, several things by his grace, I want you to see foremost that God is wise in choosing our representative. Um, It's hard for us, perhaps in a... Democratic Republic to understand this because we're not under, per se, a king. And we have thought it to be much more wise that we would be so wise and so smart to choose our representatives. But as you know, in the times we live, uh, we will often find ourselves choosing those who are not good men, uh, not good people, to lead and to represent us. They don't always carry through. God is perfectly wise. Um, If it was up to us, in our sin and in our inability to see things rightly, we would choose Saul over David. That's representative of what we would choose. We would choose the one who who looks taller, stands more handsomely, uh, looks the part, but we don't look at the heart because we can't see the heart. We can see aspects of the heart as a person lives out their faith in the Christian life. We can see the things that people say for out of the heart we speak. We can see those aspects of things, but we don't see the whole trajectory. We don't have all wisdom. We're not omniscient. We're not made to be. We're not made to know everything or even have to know everything. We're made to depend on one who does. And God is wise to have chosen foremost Adam to represent the human race. There's one race. It's the human race. It's of all peoples, all nations, all kindreds throughout the entire universe. And they're all represented in their humanity by Adam. And that's what it says here. It says, For just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, there are several encouragements about this. And that is, the way Paul writes, that is, he he shares the first sentence here, and then he doesn't return to the thought till verse 18. So, if you find yourself... That way, 
the fact of the matter is, is you may start something and then pick it up several verses later. That's Paul. And the encouragement is the Holy Spirit is the one who superintended that to say it exactly the way we needed to hear it. So if there was a better way of saying it, he would have said it because this is not just the word of men, but the word of God. So he introduces the idea, and that is we have one man that brought sin into the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he's going to go off and explain that because he understands that those who are reading this letter are going to have questions immediately. And the question largely is going to deal with um, the, the issues of death, the issues of representative judgment, and so forth. It says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So they had the shorter catechism answer, which is, what is sin? Sin would be the lack of conformity or duty towards uh, God in any way. So you fall short. That, that means the sins of omission and the sins of commission. The, th- the sins that man intends to do and the sins that he should do something about it and he doesn't do. Both are sins. And the reader would understand what sin is. Sin can't be defined without law. So, Paul is explaining here that the standard issue of sin being defined by law is certainly true. And he's going to pick that up by verses 20 and 21 and explain further. But he's going to say very clearly that even though the law was not given yet, that being the Mosaic law, even though that law was not given yet, clearly there was a law that was operative. Clearly there was a definition of sin that was operative. Because, he says, death, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So how could you have punishment happening for sin without there being a law that defines sin? And so he's going off and explaining death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those who were sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So this is your introduction to Christ's superabundant grace. But we must accept, I think, first of all, if we're going to get the grace of the gospel, according to Paul, you're going to have to accept that he chose a good leader for us before the fall. In spite of sin, in spite of death, before the law was given. And the reason this is the case is because Adam perfectly represents who we are outside of Christ. Many people would have a very difficult time saying, well, I didn't choose Adam. Adam's the one that sinned, and I'm just getting the consequences. No, you're missing the point. Paul is saying that Adam perfectly represents humanity. If you were put in that position, that's what you would do. That's what you would have done. That's what I would have done. Adam represents exactly who we are outside of Christ. Those who will sin and those who will pass that sin on to generations of people below us. In other words, apart from Christ, apart from the one, the antitype to come, there is no hope. He was, God chose the perfect 
Some people call it the federal head, the representative, the leader. God chose that one to perfectly represent who we are outside of Christ. But He doesn't stop there. He shows that humanity is represented by Adam, but it was never just about Adam. It was by the second Adam, the last Adam that was to come because He says here that Adam was a type, a type of the one who was to come. And if you can imagine... The word type, at least in its etymology, is an issue of having a cast whereby something is made. And you have the type, you have this cast, but the real thing, the thing, the substance in which is to be enjoyed is Christ. Christ is the anti-type over and against the type. So if you have, I have a a friend who's producing um, a reproduction of sermons by Spurgeon. And they have the cast. Looks like gold plates. <clears throat> you better watch the Mormons will find out and start another cult. But they're like gold plates. And what happens is these gold plates are going to be used to press out the actual book. To press out the actual gold on the book and to press out the shape of it. And then you're going to have the book. You're going to have the sermons and the book open and to enjoy And so it is the cast, the thing here that's forming. You have Adam, but the substance is Christ. In other words, the world was not about Adam, though Adam represents us perfectly, shows exactly who we are without Christ. He's our father there, but we have an everlasting father, Isaiah says. A prince of peace who represents the new humanity. In other words, something takes place by the abundance of God's grace, whereby no longer the moment you put your faith in Christ and are justified, as has been covered already. Once that takes place, you now have a different representative. You're no longer represented by Adam. Adam has chosen for you a new representative, a new federal head, and his name is Jesus Christ. So all that you were could be seen before Christ in Adam. And all that you have and all that you possess and all that would be demonstrated, death and sin and all of its awful curse. That's the representative you had. But a radical change has taken place. Now, you're represented by the Son of God. The last Adam. His righteousness, His peace, His life, all of that. That now represents you in Christ. That now represents who you really are as a human being because you're the part of the living humanity. You're part of the real humanity. It's like C.S. Lewis would describe that in reality, men, there's a time in which men are like beasts, but they still call themselves humans. And the moment that man fell, instead of him being having dominion over the animals and over creation, He's now put under creation, even to the point where he's put under the dust of the ground by death. That's the consequence of sin. We lose our humanity. But because of Christ, we are now represented by him. He represents. And so a lot of people will will buck about being represented by Adam. But see, if we don't accept that God chose Adam as a perfect representative of who we are outside of Christ, 
There can be no second Adam. Now, I told you in the beginning of this is that some theologians have made this so very difficult without need. Um, Perhaps they have too much time on their hands with this, but there's been noble efforts made, but there's so much confusion brought about because this text is made, it's made to serve some noble purposes, like a historical Adam. Well, that's a given. Um, So some people will use it to have to deal with the historical Adam. And we'll talk a little bit about the active and passive righteousness of Christ, but it seems there's so much expended on that. I think the simplicity of the text should shed forth the light that we have foremost a new representative representing you and me so that in context with what he's actually saying, and that's key, don't lose that, he's preparing them to be able to appreciate the gospel preaching in person, be strengthened mutually together when he comes. What do they need to know? They need to know their justification in Christ is absolutely secure. And he ends it with a finale of saying, Christ is now your head. Christ represents who you are, church. You are in Christ Jesus. And he's going to go on from chapter 5 through 8, developing this rock-solid certainty, even through his own experience of, of struggling with sin and his own answering of a charge of antinomianism, meaning some people saying, well, you're saying God's grace is so abundant you don't need to do, do anything. And he'll answer that in chapter 6. And in chapter 8, he'll conclude with heightening the language of chapter 5. But that's, the, that's the big picture of what we see here. Now, I told you in the beginning, this is all introduction, that he picks up his thought in verse 18. So notice, he comes back to, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, Adam represented us. We were condemned in, uh, because of uh, our sin. That's what we would do. We would do what Adam would do. In fact, we do do what Adam did. We reject God's wisdom. We reject God's law. We reject God being master and Lord over us. And we want to go our own way. We want to choose our own representatives. We think we're wiser than God. We don't want to accept the fact this is who we are. Every time, though, we look at Adam in chapter 1 through 3 of Genesis, we should realize that's who we are outside of Christ. We are represented well outside of Christ. We're sinners apart from grace. And we have to accept that if we're ever going to accept that there's one whose act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So you can't have the second Adam, the last Adam, if you don't deal with this introductory matter that we were represented Perfectly well, God chose that representative, but he's chosen a new representative for you who believe. Now, with that introduction, what is this message all about? It's about grace triumphs like a king here. Where man in his in death and condemnation and inability raises itself up as an obstacle against God and his grace. There is an irresistible power of grace that overwhelms the sinner and makes him new makes him alive by the spirit it's not of his own doing it's by grace you are saved through faith it's not of works lest any man should boast and we've just read about that as what we boast in we glory we rejoice in that's the same word for boast we rejoice in even our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance character character hope it's it's productive and hope doesn't put us to shame it's not like a wishful thinking But it is built on the rock-solid certainty of the love of God demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ's cross 
remains to be central and primary representative of the whole work of Christ. Because it is on the cross that He bore our sins. It is on the cross that He took our iniquity. It's on the cross He paid the full debt of what we owed. And it's finished. There's no need for a time for it to be burned off, as the Roman Catholics say, in purgatory. When Christ died, He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He fulfilled that punishment due to us as being fully, truly man and truly God, able to bear it. And because there was no wickedness in Him, and He was altogether perfectly righteous, the grave could not hold Him. And the resurrection not only represents the work of Christ, it is the work of Christ effectively in our lives. If we didn't have a risen Christ, we would still be in our sins. He did not merely die, He rose. But when when we talk about the death of Christ, we're not discounting the resurrection of Christ. When we talk about the death and the resurrection, we're not discounting the life of Christ. But I find that most people... They would rather talk about his life. He, they would rather talk about the Christmas story. They would rather talk about the resurrection. But people don't like to talk about the cross. And I think the cross is the major thing in view of the text. It represents the whole work of God. Now, we'll get to that, but what's the first obstacle? The first obstacle is we are condemned... We are cursed outside of Christ. So he goes on and he says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. And notice that argument, much more. It's what we looked at last week. The greater the lesser arguments. So you have this greater argument. People die. Babies die in the crib. How do you explain that? He says, He already explained it. He says, sin was in the world before the law. You had death in the world before the law of Moses, which shows there's always been a law in the world. Nonetheless, the ramifications of what Adam did upon all humanity and our sins upon all humanity is death, condemnation. It says, if if many died, and many have died, through one man's trespass, much more. So the greater argument, many have died, but much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. You stop there and you say, what could overcome our condemnation? And it says plainly, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the first point is simply that Paul is stating that it is the grace of justification through Christ's work that has overcome the condemnation that was due to us in Adam. Now being in Christ, we are justified. We are declared righteous. 
and we are forgiven all our sins. And you would say, I'm condemned. Imagine yourself a prisoner condemned. There's no hope. You're guilty of the crime. You've been tried by the judge. You're absolutely deserving of the death to come. And yet, a gift is given to free you from that. Not merely to free you from it to ignore the fact that you have a due judgment on your life. But actually, the judge of the universe comes down and pays the judgment because he has in him the abundance of life and of grace so as to pay for it and to not be destroyed and to actually rise up as our representative in the resurrection. And so not even condemnation of the worst sort that's due to us as those in Adam could stop the king from overruling by His grace and making us saints and no longer sinners. Our identity is now represented by one who triumphed over condemnation. That's why when you get to chapter 8, And Paul comes out of his struggle in chapter 7. He's saying, I do the things I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. i got this conflict within me. The law shines even light onto it and shows me how bad I am and how sinful I am. Is there anything that would deliver me from this body of death? And then what does he go into? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then he goes into chapter 8 and he says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There it is. There is the superabundance of the King's grace overcoming the obstacle of our condemnation. God chose Christ to represent us now. And we are now justified, forgiven all our sins. And we are made to be those who are His children children of the everlasting Father who represents us. So that's the first matter, is the King the king overcomes. And I want you to keep in mind the Holy Spirit here. If you remember, chapters 5 through 8 largely show the Spirit's work. And a lot of people struggle with a doctrine called irresistible grace. In other words, people want to say, I choose God, or I chose God. People want to boast in their free will. Let me just announce to you very Very clear from Scripture, you don't have a free will. Your will was bound to do what you want to do, and what you want to do until you're regenerated is you want to sin. The whole glorious message of the Gospel is that His irresistible grace changed your heart, took a stony heart out, put a fleshly heart in, and made you want something you would never want before. Made you love someone you've never loved before. Made you love the people attached to this one that you would never love before. He changed your affections from the inside out. And He freed your will, if you would, to love God and obey God. But in Adam, you're never free. Humanity doesn't have a free will. Humanity is bound to sin. You remove that from the bad news, you'll never appreciate the good news. And yet our land is plagued right in our own community with churches that boast in their own choice. 
Man's choice has led nowhere but to condemnation. I don't want my choice. I want the one who chose me. I don't want what I could come up with in my wisdom, for I know I would choose that which would condemn me. I want God who chooses perfectly, who represents me perfectly in Christ, because I'm now a new creation. I don't want my will. I want His will. Do you see how contradictory it is to boast in your will? And perhaps let us be fair. We all boast in things we shouldn't boast in. Every church does. Every Christian does. We all fall short in this thing. But it should be the job of the pulpit and the job of the Christian in the church to continually steer each other to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ and His glory. We should be a people that is completely entranced and focused on and consumed with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It wasn't Paul that simply said, I chose to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the sake of Paul knowing that. It's for the sake that we would make it our aim to know that. That we would find our hope in the cross of Jesus Christ, the One who was condemned for us. There's no given day that if you're a Christian believer, you can't wake up and you, at your worst day and your worst, even things that you've done or said that you shouldn't have said and done, and there it is, you have to run to the cross. It's the only place to go where there's no condemnation. It's the only place to go to know where there's one who delivers you from all the condemnation that's due against you. It is the Christian's joy to know they are not represented anymore in Adam. But they now have Christ and they flee to Him as a refuge week in and week out. It's a big part of why we're doing what we do today. is to come and be reminded of the grace of Christ. And this leads to assurance, doesn't it? It leads to my assurance. It's not in what I do. It's not in what I think. It's not in who I am. It is in Christ. And I am in Him. This is vital. It's vital to see that it is the King who overpowered your condemnation and by His Spirit made you alive in Him. And so, is there any condemnation that could ever stand against you? According to Scripture, no. Not if you're in Christ. Not if you trusted in Christ. Secondly, the obstacle of death. Perhaps the most difficult obstacle, is it not? Because the obstacle of death is set forth here Especially in verse 17, we see if one man's trespass, because of it, death reigned through that one man. There's the greater argument. We know it reigns. Death is conquering people and overcoming people and destroying people's lives. And it says here, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. And perhaps perhaps we could go one more verse or two. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so the obstacle of death is laid here as that which the king, by his grace, overcomes. And of course, we know he overcomes this mostly in the fact of the resurrection. 
But there's something interesting in the Gospels that shows up here. And that is the issue of eternal life. That which leads to eternal life. And we find that the one who has believed in the Son has eternal life. But the one who is not is condemned already and the wrath of God abides on him. There is that struggle, is it not? The idea that we want to soften the idea of where humanity is. The Bible declares in Romans, it declares in John's Gospel, the wrath of God is upon a humanity that rejects Jesus. He doesn't just hate the sin, he hates the sinner. Until that sinner is represented in his son. That's a tough word. But the fact is, is that you see sinner after sinner is condemned. And they can't, they can't help themselves. They can't free themselves. They can't come outside of themselves. They need a Savior who comes within them and changes them from the inside out and takes the condemnation. But not only that, He takes the death. And for believers, we must be encouraged today because this grace of life comes to us and we receive eternal life the moment we believe and increasingly all the way to glory. We must take heart that the only death we're ever going to die is a physical death. We have no part in what the Bible describes as a second death. Now, it's beyond our wisdom or capability or even God's revelation to explain why death continues in the world, except for the fact that we're still part of the humanity while we are represented fully by the deity. In other words, God has been pleased to leave us in the world expressing his patience to a humanity that rejects him until all the elect are brought into the fold and the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's as far as we can go. We know his revealed will. Outside of that, we know not his secret purposes. We simply know he has left us in this world to be not of the world and to be a witness to this world of the power of God's grace. And every day we are. In fact, a message of life to many people, but yet a fragrance of death to others. Or a message of life to those in whom He is calling. He is drawing to Himself. And they see the God in whom made them. The God who loves them. The God who sent His Son to die for them. And they are gradually but fully brought to Christ and made alive here in our lifetimes. And we see Men, women, boys, or girls come to that faith. We're representative of that because we didn't come into this world on our own. We didn't come into the faith on our own. We came in by grace and we had the instrument of faith to grab hold. We simply had a hand to hold the grace gift that He gave us. Death is a reminder day in and day out of the destructive nature of Adam and our sin without God but we'll only face human death, the bodily death, once. We'll not face a second death. Those who are outside of Christ, the Bible declares, they will face an eternal death. The Bible doesn't doesn't whitewash it. The Bible doesn't water it down. The Bible says those who are outside of Christ will continue in their condition. They will continue in 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 a condition of death. But we have been brought out of that. We are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer fluttering after dead things. 
We have been made alive in Christ and therefore we're not flocking around dead things like vultures. We're coming together around the living one. We're coming around the one who gives life. We have present tense and ongoing eternal life increasingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And death reigned. Death reigned. But here it speaks of it. Grace, the abundance of grace being as a gift of righteousness. This reigns. Now, we should stop and point out this is where the issue of the act of righteousness or the life of Christ comes in. And I think it is some fruit uh, to share about the importance of the life of Christ, even though don't lose the cross. The fact is, is that Jesus Christ did not merely die on a cross. He lived a perfect life. Adam, Adam sinned, represented all humanity in their fall. But Christ lived an absolutely perfect life. So what can make you confident before the Lord is not merely he died for your sins, but that he who died for your sins was God. And he was both truly God and truly man. And he lived a perfect life. It was many theologians who have declared that there is no hope without the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that means the life of Christ that he lived for, as, as the Orthodox uh, believe, 33 perfect years. There, there's one church father that believes he lived out to be about 50. Nonetheless, all the years that he lived, he lived without sin. Now, none of us can say that. None of us can say that we've lived without sin. So if we're banking on the way we've lived our life so that we might make it to heaven or might be able to stand innocent at the judgment bar of Christ or might be able to stand actually, factually encouraged on a given day when we feel it a failure or have failed, we're going to be, we're going to be in poverty. But if the one who represents us lived a perfect life, and we are in Him, then we are now not only justified, but we are alive and being enlivened by the One whose life is perfect, and we will not be condemned on the judgment day. In other words, you shouldn't be like the woman who I counseled years ago, who was near her death's door, and asked her, do you have confidence that when you die and you leave this world, you'll go to heaven? And she said, I hope so. But her hope was not in a confident hope like we're talking about that we have the hope that doesn't disappoint. It was, well, I've done my best. I've tried to believe my best. All those things. I hope I make it. That's not the goal here. And I want to point you to the thing that might help you. And the thing that might help you is this. Don't forget the one who died lived a perfect life. You're in him. It wasn't that He just died for your sins. He lived. He, from the moment, Calvin says, the moment of His being conceived in the womb, He was then living the life that we should live. He died the death that we deserved. And He rose from the grave on the third day. So we should take heart that this grace overcomes our death. We are dead in our sins. Christ makes us alive and we now are living people. We're living stones being built together into the temple of God in this earth. 
and we will not ultimately die. Now, the third matter, it's not just death. And by the way, in the final day, death will be completely defeated, physical death and all. It's the last enemy. That's why we believe he's reigning right now. Grace reigns because he reigns. If your Savior was dead, you don't have grace reigning because he's not reigning. The perfect one wouldn't be reigning. But he reigns right now. He's ascended to heaven. So any, any type of eschatology that teaches that Christ doesn't reign right now lacks gospel brevity and gospel necessity. You cannot speak of a gospel where Christ is not ascended. Because if he hasn't ascended, you have nobody to represent you before the Father. You're in huge trouble. But he's ascended, and therefore all the righteousness that he has declared is yours in him. And there's more than you need there. Abundance of grace. Okay, so move from death. We move from condemnation that's overcome. Condemnation's overcome by justification. Our death is overcome by his everlasting life. But then what does he do here? He transforms something else. He turns the law. He turns the law into that which representing our inability that actually highlights how we cannot in any measure save ourselves. He takes that which highlights our inability and by his power, by his power, he makes us willing from now on to live for him. Notice what it says. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now stop there. Remember what he said in the beginning. He talks about the law. He says, the law, before the law was given, there was death. So there had to be some type of law in the world already. Because law is defined by sin. But he comes back around and he says, why was the law given? Why was the moral law given to us? It was given to be like a flashlight or a magnifying glass. And it was to show your sin. It was to show my sin. That's why Paul will say, I wouldn't have known, wouldn't have known had it not said, don't covet. And then the law brought death to me. So he's saying the same thing here. He's saying the law acts as a magnifying glass on your sin. And it, it shows Actually, you're in worse shape than you really thought you were, right? Many people in our pessimistic day are looking out at the world and they're looking at the news and they're looking at humanity and they're looking at the murders. They're looking at the rapes. They're looking at all the things that are going on in the world, the utter pit of humanity in places and what people are doing to each other left to their own. And they look and they become hopeless about it. And, you know, you would expect, OK, God will come along and he'll say, dear, dear, it's not that bad, but he doesn't do that. He comes and shows it's actually worse than you could possibly imagine. Now, he does this in order to magnify his grace, because as bad as it is, even beyond our understanding and our opinions. God comes and shows God's grace is equally as glorious, more than our understandings, more than our opinions, more than we can imagine about God. Way more. So there's the much more, the sin on humanity. The old humanity is cursed. But yet, when you're brought into Christ, the grace of Christ is way more abundant than anything of its 
equal depth of evil in the other direction would have gone. God's grace is a superabundance and it is able to deal with the law's aspect of an enemy against you. The law is an enemy to you before you come to Christ. Then it becomes a guide. It becomes something you love. That's when your will changes. right? You don't go to the law before you're saved and say, man, I just love that law that talks about how, um, how we're supposed to honor father and mother. I just love that law that talks about how we're supposed to serve one God, not make idols, not bow down to Him, worship the Lord, not take His name in vain, honor His day. Or I love that law about not stealing and not murdering, about not coveting, about not bearing false witness. No, you never would say that until God regenerated your heart. Then you say with David that was in Christ, how I love your law, Lord. The law is changed and transformed from the greatest enemy of your life now into one who guides you in your life and conducts you in your life by the Holy Spirit so that you know how to live a pleasing life for the Lord. Not as a basis of salvation, but as a proof that you're really saved. And in answering the charge of antinomianism, in which he goes into next, he's going to get into that because you can't possibly have understood what verses 12 through 21 say, if you get out of that some idea that you should just go on sinning because God's grace is so great. If you understand what's in verses 12 through 21 and the certainty of the salvation He has wrought and represented in His Son Jesus Christ for you, it's the last thing you want to do to go on sinning. If you understand the measure of one who would come and die for you and be raised, live a perfect life for you, ascend to the Father at the right hand and represent you so that you have no condemnation but justification, death is even defeated on your behalf so you have life, and the fact that the law is no longer an enemy but now a guide, there is no way you can come out of that and say, let's go on sinning. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Because when we get Christ in the way Scripture has presented it, then when the preaching is set forth, you don't doubt that you're God's children. We know that we are God's children now and what we shall be. We can't even imagine. He says to pray for the power and the strength to know the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The the width of it, the length of it, the breadth of it, the height of it, all of it. It surpasses knowledge. But the question really has to be, is this is only true for those who've been justified. This is only true for those who've been regenerated from the heart. It's not true for those who hate God, who don't love God and the things of God. It's not true for those whose hearts have not been made to love Him and to love the people of God. It's not true for those who are still represented by Adam. It's only true for those who have come under the wings of Christ, whose wings you have come, church, whose expression today represents we are a people that have been taken under His wings to be cared for, He will not fail. Death's defeated. Condemnation is defeated. The law is an enemy, is changed. And He's made now even our enemies to be at peace with us in the law. We're a new people represented by a new king. This king, unlike the first, 
cannot die, cannot sin, cannot fail. That's a king whose grace reigns. Not as an excuse to live how we want, but as a pathway to live how we want to now as a people of God. May God's grace and peace be upon you as you reflect on these things. Let us stand. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the abundance of grace in Christ, exceeding exceeding all the debt of our sins, exceeding the depth of death, taking us out of the grave with Christ to have eternal life forever, increasingly, and even in our physical deaths that we will enter into more life, and death will no longer be able to touch us forever. Thank you, Father, that the law, which was our enemy, which brought only condemnation upon us, has now become a friend and a guide to guide us in the way that is pleasing to you. Leading guide us today and throughout this day and this week in a way that we can have the confidence that's intended by Paul to know that we are your children now that Christ is our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, and His reign will never end. And it is His empire that rules over all, and the kingdoms of this Lord, will, kingdoms of this world, will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you glory, and we thank you. And we pray, Father, as we take of that which represents the great price that you have paid, your son has paid, that we reflect upon these things we have learned, we would take heart that while we're in the world, we're not of the world. We're not strangers or aliens to you any longer. We are strangers and aliens only to the world. And this world is yours. This is our Father's world. And you give this earth, you say, to the meek. Help us meekly come today. Accepting of your grace. Receiving again the fresh benefits of it in the table that we celebrate. That body, that blood, we pray, you set apart now for the strengthening of our souls and our bodies in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.